welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. This episode, I thought I'd try something a little bit different, a bit of an experiment, and I did not down an entire cold brew coffee before recording, so we're going to see how that goes. This episode, I'm going to be covering the life and times of Percy Bish Shelley. In high school, you probably read a poem of Percy Shelley, Ozymandias, aka that poem about the old statue that's sitting in the desert with a warning about not thinking you're too great. However, Percy Shelley is more than just that single poem. His study guide has vegetarianism, driving women to suicide, and children of mysterious parentage. Let's begin. Percy Bysshe Shelley is born August 4, 1792, in Broadbridge Heath in West Sussex. He is the oldest legitimate son of Sir Timothy Shelley and Timothy's wife, Elizabeth Pilford. Timothy Shelley is a Whig member of Parliament, and Elizabeth comes from a land-owning family in Sussex. Elizabeth isn't the only one of Shelley's parents to be wealthy. Timothy Shelley also is very wealthy. The family owns a ton of land, which means that Percy Shelley, once he's an adult and once his father dies, will inherit quite a bit of land and a seat in Parliament. He's also technically in line to be a baronet at some point in his life. Percy Shelley also has four younger sisters and a younger brother, but none of them are all that important to his adult life, so we're not going to talk that much about them. As a young child, Percy Shelley is going to be educated at home by a local reverend. Because he's being educated in the late 1790s, his childhood education is mostly going to focus on Latin, although Oddly enough, Percy Shelley also is going to learn Welsh, of all things. I'm not sure why the Shelley family were super into Welsh. As far as I know, they weren't actually Welsh. Maybe Timothy Shelley just thought that having his children be well-rounded was important. Percy is going to spend a lot of his childhood wandering through the Sussex countryside, hunting, and fishing. At an early age, he's going to get really interested in farming, and this is going to be an interest that lasts throughout his life. He's always going to be fascinated in ways to make farming more efficient so that farmers can grow more food in a faster amount of time so they don't have to constantly be worrying about starving to death. Because if you were a farmer in the late 1790s in England, starving to death is always a matter of some concern. In 1802, when he's 10, Shelley's family sends him to the Scion House Academy to get a slightly more formal education. The Scion House Academy was an interesting choice of school. Percy Shelley comes from a wealthy family. His relatives are nobles. His father is a member of parliament. However, Scion House Academy is relatively middle class. Most of Shelley's fellow students are the sons of merchants and tradesmen. I don't know if it's this time at Zion House Academy that helped make Shelley the political radical that he's known to be, but it's certainly interesting to think that this may have played some role in that. In 
Two years after Scion House Academy, Shelley leaves. He is sent to Eton because if your dad is a member of parliament and you're wealthy, there are two schools that you're going to end up at, Harrow or Eton, and Shelley is sent to the latter. He does not enjoy his time at Eton. He is bullied pretty mercilessly by the older boys there, and this bullying is so bad that it gets its own special name. Shelley baiting. As a result of the physical abuse that he suffers during his time at Eton, Percy Shelley becomes pretty anti some classic Etonian traditions, such as physical games and the tradition of fagging younger students, aka making them do chores and other menial tasks for the older boys. Because Shelley has quickly established himself as someone who's against tradition, he gets the oh-so-creative nickname Mad Shelley. Shelley does not have a lot of friends, but he's fine with that. Instead, he's going to spend most of his time at Eton learning about science. At one point, he manages to blow up a tree with gunpowder, which is impressive, but also slightly concerning. He's also going to create a machine on his door that shocks anyone who tries to get into his bedroom, which is really impressive. If I had been at all skilled at STEM during my high school years, instead of the humanities hoe that I was and still am, I definitely would have tried to make something similar. Percy Shelley may not have had friends his own age at Eton, but he becomes really close to a teacher, James Lind. And James Lind isn't a sketchy, touchy-feely teacher. Oh no. James Lind is going to introduce Percy Shelley to thinkers and philosophers like Plato, Erasmus Darwin, and William Godwin. Remember the name William Godwin, because he's going to be really important to Percy Shelley's later romantic life. In addition to getting into these radical political thinkers, Shelley's also going to get really into Gothic literature during his time at Eton. But then again, what teenager isn't super into the Gothic and the emo? After graduating from Eton, Percy Shelley goes to Oxford University. He specifically is going to attend University College at Oxford. And his time at University College isn't going to last all that long. He's only going to be a student there for six months. First of all, Percy Shelley isn't exactly great at going to classes. Instead of going to classes, he just reads and writes a lot. Which, you know, that's fair. I was always tempted to skip class and hang out in the library and read various Trollop novels, but I did not because I was too much of an uptight nerd. During his time at Oxford, Percy Shelley is going to publish his first two pieces of writing, two novels, Zastrozzi and the very low-key titled St. Irvin or the Ruscurian A Romance, both of which are gothic romances. He's also going to write and publish some poems with the help of one of his younger sisters, Elizabeth. The main reason, though, that Percy Shelley gets kicked out of Oxford after only six months is because of a little pamphlet he publishes in the spring of 1811. He publishes this pamphlet, The Necessity of Atheism, with his BFF, Thomas Jefferson Hogg. In this pamphlet, Shelley and Hogg argue that atheists shouldn't be punished for their beliefs. And this idea is really controversial in the early 1800s. Not only do Shelley and Hogg 
write and publish this idea, they also send it to all the heads of various colleges at Oxford and are like, hey, we'd love to debate our controversial religious ideas with you. The heads of the Oxford colleges are like, yeah, no, we're not doing this. You are kicked out of Oxford. Shelley is offered the opportunity to return back to Oxford if he apologizes for the pamphlet, and he's like, yeah, no, I'm not apologizing for my views. Thomas Jefferson Hogg, however, apologizes, gets reaccepted into Oxford, and then recants his apology, is like, yeah, no, part of this pamphlet, don't feel bad about it at all, and gets re-expelled. Timothy Shelley, Percy's dad, is not thrilled about the whole son getting expelled from Oxford after only six months and pushes to get his son reinstated. Percy Shelley says, no, I'm not going to change my beliefs. I'm not going to apologize. And then takes it one step further by sending the pamphlet to local bishops and challenging the local bishops to debate. And by that point, it's really clear that Shelley is not going back to Oxford. And all this causes a huge falling out with his dad. Timothy Shelley and Percy Shelley have never been the closest of father and son, and by now, Percy is right on the edge of getting disinherited. And it's going to get a lot worse. After being kicked out of Oxford, Percy has to figure out what to do next. His father is all, you must come home immediately, young man. But Percy has no interest in doing that. He knows that if he goes back to the family estate in Sussex, he will be watched by strict supervision and won't get to do anything fun. Besides, he had promised Thomas Jefferson Hogue that the two would hang out and live together in London in a strictly platonic sense. Percy Shelley, after all, is aggressively heterosexual. However, Thomas Jefferson Hogg ends up ditching Shelley to go to law school, and Percy Shelley has no choice but to start the journey home. He never quite makes it there. On the way, he meets Harriet Westbrook, a friend of one of his sisters. Harriet Westbrook is 16, and she's just come off of writing Shelley a bunch of letters saying that she utterly hates school and that she's thinking of committing suicide. Percy Shelley has just ended a relationship with one of his cousins because apparently in the early 1800s, if you're a noble, you're like legally required to be in love with a cousin. See the Lord Byron episode for more details. And Percy Shelley decides that he is going to rescue Harriet Westbrook. In August 1811, the two elope. At first, Percy Shelley has no interest in marrying Harriet. Marriage is way too much of a bourgeoisie institution for young Percy, but then he realizes that if he doesn't marry Harriet, her reputation would be ruined, and he doesn't want to be a complete and utter jerk. So, on August 29th, 1811, the two get married. Shelley is 19, and Harriet is 16. Harriet's parents are fine with the marriage, because, after all, Shelley is from a wealthy and somewhat noble family. Shelley's father is furious about the whole thing because Harriet's father, while somewhat financially well-off, is a tavern owner and he does not want his son to be married to the daughter of a tavern owner. So Timothy Shelley does the rational thing and financially cuts off Percy Shelley. 
So now, Percy Shelley is 19, disinherited, and married. How is his new marriage going to go? Spoiler alert, not that great. The newlyweds don't have a ton of money because of the whole Percy Shelley getting disinherited by his father thing, but Percy Shelley still has super expensive taste. For example, throughout his entire life, he will only drink green tea from Italy. And yes, I definitely am a tea snob too, but when you get disinherited, you do need to cut back a little bit. And it is kind of ironic that Shelley was so snobby in his tastes, given how radical he was in his politics. Then, almost immediately after the marriage, Shelley's BFF, Thomas Hogue, tries to have an affair with Harriet. Neither Shelley nor Harriet are super into this whole affair thing, and that also sours the relationship. And then Harriet's sister, Eliza, moves in with the newlyweds. Shelley and Eliza do not get along at all. Eliza keeps pushing Harriet to try out things like not breastfeeding her children, and Shelley hates this. Shelley thinks that her children should be brought up in a very natural way, which includes breastfeeding. And then Shelley starts a mostly platonic affair with Elizabeth Hitchener, an older school teacher who's involved in radical politics. Hitchener and Shelley are going to keep getting in trouble with the British authorities, and Hitchener is also going to act as Shelley's muse for a lot of his work, especially the longer poem Queen Mab, which he is going to be writing during this time. Pretty soon after the marriage to Harriet, due to the whole lack of funds thing, Shelley is going to move the family down to the Lake District. At the Lake District, he's going to meet an important poet, Robert Southey. I discussed Robert Southey briefly in the Wordsworth and Coleridge episodes, but I know those study guides came out a while ago, so as a quick recap, Southey was friendly with both Wordsworth and Coleridge. He saw quite a bit of commercial success and eventually became the Poet Laureate of England. Southey and Shelley hit it off really quickly, and Southey introduces Shelley to William Godwin, a well-known radical philosopher who Shelley had read during his time at Eton. Godwin sees a lot of inspiration in Percy Shelley. Part of this is because Percy Shelley is genuinely smart and genuinely interested in radical politics, and part of this is because Percy Shelley potentially has access to quite a bit of money, and William Godwin's finances have never been exactly stable. Godwin convinces Shelley to reconcile with his father, which mostly works. Percy Shelley writes his dad an apology letter and ends up getting most of his allowance back. During this time, Shelley starts getting deeper and deeper into radical politics. He's especially interested in helping out the English and Irish Catholics who have no political or legal rights at this point in time. This erosion of rights for Catholics really had started out 
with the test acts during the reign of Charles II and building from there, we get to this point in the early 1800s where Catholics can't vote. They can't pursue higher education. They can't own land. It's especially awful in Ireland where Catholics make up the majority of the population but own less than 5% of the land. And throughout the late 1790s and early 1800s, we see a series of attempts to do what's known as the Catholic Emancipation to undo this and give Catholics basic human rights. All of these attempts fail. But Percy Shelley is really pro-Catholic emancipation. He writes a bunch of pamphlets on the subject, as well as these fairly anti-Catholic pamphlets that are anti-Catholic in the sense that Percy Shelley just doesn't believe in religion because he's an atheist. Shelley's writings are radical enough that he's going to be watched by the British government for his views. He's going to be fined and generally threatened with arrest. During this time period, around 1812, Percy Shelley becomes a vegetarian. He had a friend who had become vegetarian after going to India, and Shelley is super inspired by this. He thinks that animals are sentient, so it's wrong to eat them. And then, in 1814, Shelley meets the woman, well, girl, who's really going to change his life. William Godwin's daughter, Mary Godwin. The two technically had met in 1812, but only very briefly. 1814 is when when Percy and Mary really get to know each other. Mary Godwin had been away living with some family friends, and in 1814, she returns home, and the two start getting to know each other, and they very quickly hit it off. Percy Shelley falls in love with Mary Godwin, even though, one, she's only 16, and two, slightly more importantly, he is married and has children. He doesn't let that stop him. Mary and Percy have sex on her mother's grave at some point in June, and Percy is so in to Mary Godwin that he says he will commit suicide unless Mary loves him back. And Mary Godwin is like, yeah, I'm into you too. So in July 1814, Percy leaves Harriet, who is pregnant at this point, and runs off to Europe with Mary and her stepsister, Claire Claremont. The trio do not bring along Mary's half-sister, Fanny Imlay, with them, which really upsets Fanny Imlay because, as it turns out, Fanny also is in love with Percy Shelley. The three spend six weeks in Europe, running around, having a grand old time, before they have to come back to England, because when you look at that, they've run out of money. During their time in Europe, the three keep a joint journal, which Mary Godwin will eventually turn into a published work of her own. When the three get back to England, their parents are all furious with them. I mean, that's fair. I would be pretty annoyed if my teenagers ran off to Europe for six weeks without telling me. William Godwin is especially annoyed. He was not a fan of the relationship between Percy and Mary for a whole variety of reasons. Despite the various anger posed at him, Percy Shelley was inspired by his trip to Europe. Once he returns, he writes one of his first major works, Alistair, which gets awful reviews. 
Once he gets back, there are other things he has to deal with. In November 1814, Harriet gives birth to a son, and a few months later, in February 1815, Mary Godwin gives birth to a son who tragically dies because he was premature. However, Percy and Mary don't let their son's death stop them. In January 1816, Mary gives birth to a second child, William, who for now survives. A few months after William's birth, Shelley, Mary, and Claire go back to Europe. Claire Claremont has been having a wee affair with Lord Byron, and now she's pregnant, and she would let to and she would like to let him know about the whole pregnancy. Meanwhile, Shelley feels like life in England isn't really his jam, so they all go to Switzerland, where Lord Byron is currently living. Shelley ends up renting a house right next to Lord Byron on the bank of Lake Geneva. The two hit it off and become really good friends. This friendship inspires Shelley to write. Shelley writes a poem, Mont Blanc, while Lord Byron is writing Don Juan. Over the summer, Mary Godwin also writes. She writes a little book that will eventually become Frankenstein. All the while, she's having to fend off Lord Byron's unwanted advances while having to deal with Claire Claremont, who's really upset with the fact that Lord Byron isn't into her anymore. In the autumn of 1816, the trio will once again return to England, and this return to England goes really badly. The fall of 1816 is not a good time for Percy Shelley. First, in September 1816, Mary's half-sister, Fanny Emily, kills herself. She was really depressed that Shelley and Mary hadn't brought her to Europe with them. She feels like she was rejected from the Shelley Goodwin household. She was stressed over having to deal with William Godwin's anger over Percy Shelley's ever-growing debts to him. And finally, she was upset that Percy Shelley didn't return her feelings for him. All this culminates with Fanny taking an overdose of laudanum on October 9th, 1816, and dying from that. Fanny's death is super upsetting for both Mary Godwin and Percy Shelley. Percy Shelley writes a poem in honor of her death. And things are going to get worse for Percy. On December 10th, the body of Percy's first wife, Harriet, is found drowned in a river. There are a few theories about what actually happened to Harriet. One is that Harriet was convinced that she had been abandoned by her lover and had drowned herself. Another is that she had been prostituting herself, couldn't make ends meet, and had drowned herself. Either way, it's really clear that she had killed herself and it had been via drowning. With Harriet dead, Percy Shelley is now single. He's able to get married. And on December 30th, 1816, he marries Mary Godwin and the two move to Buckinghamshire. However, once Percy Shelley marries Mary, he does lose the custody of his two surviving children that he'd had with Harriet. Interestingly enough, in the custody case over these children, the lawyers use his writing to prove that he would be a bad father and not so much the fact that he had, you know, abandoned his wife for a young teenager. Once the family is settled in Buckinghamshire, Percy Shelley befriends poets Lee Hunt, 
and John Keats. Or more accurately, he attempts to befriend John Keats. The friendship between the two is always going to be a bit strained. John Keats feels like Percy Shelley judges him because Keats does come from the middle class and the two are never going to get along as well as Percy Shelley might have liked. During this time period, Shelley is going to continue writing. He publishes a poem, Leon and Cynthia, The Revolt of Islam, which is super criticized because one, the poem attacks established religion, and two, the poem has some pretty explicit incest. In response to the poem's poor reception, Shelley will republish the poem simply as Revolt of Islam in 1818, but it's all not going to get the best reviews. Shelley is also going to continue his political writing. He's going to write a series of political pamphlets under the assumed name of the Hermit of Marlowe, but basically everyone knows these pamphlets are by Percy Shelley. During this time, Mary's sister, Claire Claremont, is going to move in with the Shelleys and will give birth to Lord Byron's daughter, who she will name Alba. Also, while the family's living in Buckinghamshire, Shelley's going to keep insisting on having really fancy living arrangements and not quite living within his means. The Shelley family is going to start going into debt. Luckily for the Shelley family, Mary Shelley does finish up writing a little book called Frankenstein, and she is going to anonymously publish it, so we do get a small revenue stream from that. By the end of 1818, the Shelley family, including Claire Claremont, move to Italy because Claire isn't having an easy time being a single mother in pre-Victorian England. Lord Byron has vaguely agreed to recognize Alba as his daughter, and she's willing to take him up on that offer. Also, Percy Shelley is kind of over England. He's worried about his health. He'd always been concerned about his health, and by now he is, in fairness, dealing with some pulmonary issues. He also wants to avoid the debts he's been running up, and finally, he wants to avoid dealing with the bad press that the revolt of Islam had received. So the whole family moves to Italy. But Italy isn't a great place for the Shelley family. In the first few months that they're living in Italy, two of his children with Mary die of scarlet fever, and Mary definitely blames Shelley and his insistence on moving to Italy for this. She feels like if they had stayed in England, these two children probably wouldn't have died. Furthermore, it's pretty clear that Shelley wasn't exactly faithful to Mary. He most likely was having some sort of affair with Claire Claremont during this time period, and he was getting super flirty with the wife of a family friend. In December 1818, Shelley registers himself as the father of a girl, Elena. It's unclear who the mother of Elena was. She may have been the daughter of some of their servants. Her mother may have been Claire Claremont, letting, lending credence to the Shelley and Claire having an affair theory, and Elena also may have just been a random orphan. It ends up not mattering that much. Elena does die in 1820, but between 1818 and early 1820, the relationship between Mary and Percy has reached a low point. 
Shelley does write a bit about his travels in Italy. We have his piece, Julian and Medaldo, and he also works on a longer piece, Prometheus Unbound, which he publishes in 1820 and gets really awful reviews. Then, in 1820, right after Elena dies, Shelley meets Teresa Amelia Viviani, the daughter of a local politician, while he's in Pisa. Teresa is supposed to go to a convent, but the two hit it off, and Percy starts translating some poems for her. The two get so close that Percy writes Teresa a poem that he sees as a marriage contract, even though he's still married to Mary, and Teresa is supposed to go to a convent. Ultimately, the relationship doesn't go much further, she ends up marrying someone else, and Shelley eventually reconciles with Mary after the two move to Florence, and Mary gives birth to a son named Percy Florence Shelley. During Percy Florence's birth, Mary almost bleeds to death, and Shelley helps save her life, which really does help with the whole reconciliation process. In my opinion, it's pretty hard to hate someone who saves you. After giving birth to Percy Florence, Shelley and Mary are going to bounce around between Florence, Pisa, and Rome. Shelley is going to keep writing during this time period. He's going to write two of his most famous political works, The Mask of Anarchy and Men of England. Shelley is going to try to reconcile with John Keats before Keats's death, but he doesn't quite get the opportunity to. Instead, he will write Keats a really famous elegy. He's also going to try to start a literary journal, The Liberal, with Byron and Lee Hunt, but this journal never quite happens, and instead, Shelley will write a critical piece, A Defense of Poetry. During this whole time period, Shelley becomes really obsessed with getting sick. In his journals, he keeps writing about how he's on the verge of death because he's so sick and he has these mysterious spasms, which are almost certainly elephantitis. Most modern historians and scholars think that these spasms were most likely kidney stones. Shelley is also convinced that he had both consumption and syphilis, but there's no proof for either of these claims. And as it turns out, Shelley did not need to worry about getting sick. He was going to die in a completely different way. Percy Shelley ends up dying on July 8th, 1822. When he's traveling in the Gulf of Spezia in his sailboat, Don Juan, which is BFF Lord Byron gave him, a sudden storm happens, and Shelley's boat sinks. Shelley doesn't know how to swim, and he drowns. He's only 29 years old at the time of his death. Mary Shelley blames Lord Byron for Percy Shelley's death. She says that the sailboat, the Don Juan, wasn't seaworthy, and Lord Byron should have known that and should have never given Shelley the boat. After his death, it takes a few days for Percy Shelley's body to wash ashore, thanks to the whole storm thing. Once it is ashore, it's immediately cremated due to various Roman laws around quarantines. Lord Byron is at the cremation, but Mary Shelley isn't. Percy Shelley's ashes are buried in the Protestant cemetery in Rome, and his tombstone has a Latin inscription, Cricordium, 
Heart of Hearts, as well as an excerpt from Shakespeare's The Tempest, nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. There's a story that while Shelley's body was being cremated, one of his friends, Edward Trelawney, managed to snatch Shelley's heart out of the fire, and it was completely intact, and that the heart was eventually buried with Shelley's son, who was also named Percy, and that the remains of his heart are now buried at St. Peter's Church, Burnmouth. As far as I know, there's never been a DNA test run on these remains, so we don't know for sure if they are of Shelley's heart or not, but I think it's a really nice story. After Shelley's death, some British conservatives start saying some really nasty comments about the whole thing. Essentially, they say that now that Shelley's dead, he gets to see if God was real or not. And that essentially is why everyone hates the Tory party. After Shelley dies, he gets a memorial in both Poets Corner of Westminster Abbey and at the University College of Oxford. Unlike his BFF, Lord Byron, there wasn't quite so much to doing over whether or not he deserved this memorial. It did not take over a century for him to get these memorials because Shelley didn't have quite as bad a reputation. Also in 1886, we got the creation of the Shelley Society to honor his legacy, and in 1909, the Keats Shelley Memorial Home in Rome opened. I've been there. Perhaps I will post a photo of myself there if people would like content of me, the saddest of girls, hanging out at the home of some sad poets. So, that is the life of Percy Shelley. For those study guide fans who are more skimmers than listeners to the full lectures, let's do a quick recap. Percy Shelley came from a wealthy, quasi-noble family, but he never quite fit in. He preferred hanging out in nature to being uptight and noble, and this really became clear at Eton, where he was bullied for his refusal to take place in, to take part in traditional activities. After Eton, he went to Oxford University, but he got kicked out after only six months for writing a pamphlet that was pro-atheism with his BFF, Thomas Jefferson Hogg. After getting expelled from Oxford, Shelley continued on his downward path by eloping with a friend of his sister's. After eloping with said friend, he got disinherited from the family and moved down to the Lake District and became friends with various radical politicians, most especially William Godwin. William Godwin convinced Percy Shelley to reconcile with his family, which he did, which was really helpful because a guy does need some money. Through William Godwin, Percy Shelley then meets Godwin's daughter, Mary, and the two quickly fall in love. Percy abandons his first wife for Mary. The two do a quick jaunt to Europe, come back to England totally in debt, get yelled at, and then go back to Europe and become friends with Lord Byron. When they return from this Euro trip, Percy Shelley's wife is kind of over the whole thing. She ends up committing suicide, most likely due to the debts that she was unable to repay. Now that Percy Shelley is single, he marries Mary Godwin, now Mary Shelley, even though that means he loses custody of his children from his first wife. 
Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley, and Mary Shelley's stepsister go back to Europe yet again. And on this whirlwind tour, Percy Shelley continues writing various poems and political tracts, hanging out with Lord Byron, most certainly having affairs, falling out with his wife, and patching things back up. Things continue like this until July 8th, 1822, when Percy Shelley drowns in a freak boat accident at the young age of 29. So, now that we've talked about Percy Shelley's life, let's talk a little bit about his writing, aka what he should be most famous for. The major themes in Percy Shelley's writing are broodiness, rebellion, especially against traditional institutions like government, monarchy, and the church, and a more pessimistic view of nature, human goodness, and imagination than earlier romantics like William Wordsworth and Samuel Coleridge. During his lifetime, Shelley wasn't taken that seriously as a rioter, and most of his works got really awful reviews, and that mostly was due to how radical he was politically. Remember, he's pro-rights for Catholics, he's an atheist, etc., etc. He does get much more popular after his death, but there is a little bit of a lull. His father, Sir Timothy, refused to allow Percy's writing to be published while Timothy was alive, and Mary Shelley did have to follow that rule in order to receive a pension, which she needed because she was trying to raise her son with Percy. However, after Sir Timothy was dead and Mary Shelley was able to promote Percy Shelley, he does start getting a lot of recognition. Major Victorian figures, including future Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli and writers such as Alfred Lord Tennyson, Thomas Hardy, George Eliot, and W. B. Yeats loved Percy Shelley and cited him as a source of major inspiration. He also was hugely embraced by Marxists due to his radical political beliefs. Still, Percy Shelley did have major critics, including Samuel Clemens, aka Mark Twain, who just did not like Percy Shelley due to the whole abandoning his first wife, and T.S. Eliot, who just hated Percy Shelley because T.S. Eliot sucks like that. So let's talk a little bit about Percy Shelley's writing. His early writing was super gothic, which makes sense because gothic writing was really popular when Percy Shelley was in his mid to late teens, and he was probably writing based on what he was reading. That's what all young writers do. Next, let's talk a bit about his political writing. His three major pieces of political writing were The Necessity of Atheism, Mask of Anarchy, England in 1819, and Men of England. The Necessity of Atheism was written in 1811 during his time as Oxford. It did lead to Shelley getting expelled from Oxford, and in The Necessity of Atheism, Shelley argued that belief must be proved and that part of this proof has to be reason, which was seen as super shocking at the time. The Mask of Anarchy 
which he wrote in 1819, but which couldn't be published until 1832, was inspired by the Peterloo Massacre of 1819. The Peterloo Massacre is a really interesting moment in British history. I really don't have time to go into it in detail. Someday maybe it will be a study guide or a tangent cast, but in short, the British army killed protesting workers, and it was one of Shelley's most explicitly political works, and the Mask of Anarchy gave the slogan, Deeds Not Words, to British suffragettes, which is pretty interesting. Then we have England in 1819 and Men of England, both of which couldn't be published until after his death due to how politically radical they were. In these pieces, he literally matches various conservative government ministers to death and fraud. In his political writing, Percy Shelley suggests the use of passive resistance in order to achieve one's political goals. And this idea of passive resistance obviously is going to be really, really inspirational to later political thinkers like Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. Next, we have Queen Mab, which Percy Shelley worked on in 1813. It takes its title from the Shakespeare figure, Queen Mab from Romeo and Juliet, and it tells the story of a fairy queen going on a journey through time and space to find the truth of human potential. Like so much of Shelley's other work in Queen Mab, he attacks traditional political institutions like the church and the monarchy, which made Queen Mab really controversial. Queen Mab was so controversial that it was used to deny him custody of his children after the death of his first wife, Harriet Westbrook. Furthermore, within Queen Mab, Shelley puts forth some fairly utopian ideas due to these ideas, as well as the controversial attacks on political institutions. It was only published privately within his lifetime. After his death in the 1830s, when it became more publicly available, Queen Mab is really going to inspire the Chartist movement, which was pushing to expand the suffrage in England. Next, we have his poem, Mont Blanc, which he wrote in 1816 during his first round of friendship with Lord Byron. In Mont Blanc, well, Percy Shelley is exploring the relationship between humans and nature, much like William Wordsworth and Samuel Coleridge had done. However, Percy Shelley takes a much less optimistic view than Wordsworth or Coleridge. He essentially argues that the only meaning people can get out of nature is the meaning that our imagination gives us, which means that if our imagination gives us no meaning or a negative meaning, we aren't going to get anything good out of nature. Shelley is much less optimistic than the earlier romantics. Next, we have Prometheus Unbound, which Shelley worked on between 1818 and 1819, but which isn't published until 1820. Prometheus Unbound explores what happens to Prometheus after the myth ends, after he has given fire to humanity, after he is bound to the mountain to be tortured by the eagle for eternity. In Prometheus Unbound, Shelley turns Prometheus into the symbol for man's soul and man's potential, and it was Shelley's favorite poem that he ever wrote, and it is considered to be his masterpiece, even though it got 
terrible reviews in his lifetime, although basically everything Shelley wrote got terrible reviews. And lastly, we have Ozymandias, which Shelley wrote in 1818. Ozymandias is probably the poem that people know him the most for because everyone reads it in high school. In my opinion, Ozymandias shows a lot of really key romantic ideas. We get that strong inspiration from the Middle East. We get that strong emotional content with the description of the mocking hand and the heart that fed and the powerful description of the face. We have that natural imagery of the sand and the criticism of traditional institutions. In the case of this poem, the criticism of the power of monarchy and the idea that a monarch will last forever. So that's a quick summary of Shelley's writing. To wrap up this episode, I'm going to read an excerpt of one of Shelley's poems. I'm reading an excerpt from Mont Blanc. I'm not reading the whole thing because that would be really, really long. I'm just reading the first stanza and the last stanza because I like the contrast between the two, and I think these two stanzas really show what Shelley is trying to accomplish vis-a-vis the relationship between human imagination and nature. Also, there's some really beautiful imagery in these two stanzas. The everlasting universe of things flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves, now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, now lending splendor from where from secret springs the source of human thought its tribute brings of waters with a sound but half its own such a feeble brook will oft assume in the wild woods among the mountains lone where waterfalls around it leap forever where woods and winds contend and a vast river over its rocks ceaselessly bursts in raves mount blanc yet gleams on high the power is there the still and solemn power of many sights and many sounds and much of life and death. In the calm darkness of the moonless nights, in the lone glare of the day, the snows descend upon that mountain. None beholds them there, nor when the flakes burn in the sinking sun, or the star beams dart through them. Winds contend silently there, and heap the snow with breath rapid and strong, but silently. Its home, the voiceless lightning, in these solitudes keeps innocently, and like vapor broods over the snow. The secret strength of things, which governs thought into the infinite dome of heaven is a law, inhabits thee. And what were thou, and earth, and star, and sea, if to the human mind's imaginings, silence and solitude for vacancy? So, that's Percy Shelley. For this podcast episode, I got most of my research from Harold Bloom's Percy Shelley, Jacqueline Mulholland's Percy Shelley, Poet and Revolutionary, Thomas Jefferson Hogg's Life of Percy Shelley, and James Bieri's Percy Bysshe Shelley, A Biography, Exile of Unfulfilled Renown, 1816-1822. If you want a full biography, as well as relevant images for the study guide, you can visit the podcast website at sadgirlstudyguides.com. As always, if you have questions, comments, or concern, you can reach out to me at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. 
Next episode, I'm going to be tackling Percy Shelley's wife and the mother of science fiction, Mary Shelley. If you want to chat with me at social media, there's the Twitter at SatGirlStudyPod. If you want to see some dank Percy Shelley memes, there's the Instagram at SatGirlStudy. If you want to support the podcast financially, you can do so at patreon.com slash sadgirlstudyguides. For $5 or more a month, you get access to the really fun bi-monthly tangent casts where I chat about people, places, and things that didn't quite make it in to the normal study guides. Recent tangent cast subjects have included Mother of Computers, Ada Lovelace, and Victorian Murderess, Mary Lamb. If you can't support us financially, that's more than fine. The best way to help out the podcast is to subscribe or tell a friend. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. If there's another podcatcher you want us to be available on, let me know and I'll do my best to make that happen. As always, I want to know how I'm doing. Rate or review or else. I'll be sad. Thanks.